Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech-savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, on to the show with your tech-savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Welcome to today's episode of the Debit This, Credit That podcast by Wheeler Accountants with your hosts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Today, we're going to be talking about a newer piece of legislation from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. There's a a new zone or a new uh, Internal Revenue Code Section 1400 Cap Z-1. It's commonly known as Opportunity Zones or O-Zones. We believe these O-Zones had the potential to be massively beneficial for tax planning as a tool we can use for our clients. They're starting to gain a lot of traction around the country, and there's a lot of excitement around them, and we think it can substantially reduce your lifetime tax burden and be a key component of our tax strategy if you're able to take advantage of them. Well, that sounds awesome. Looking forward to hearing more about it. Yep. All right. Shall we dive in? Absolutely. So, Matt, can you give us a broad overview of what the opportunity zones are and what they're intended to do? So the opportunity zones, um, it's a new thing in the tax code, like I mentioned, obviously, but there's been analogous things in the past. There's been uh, enterprise zones in California, for instance, or uh, analogous kind of things in other states as well. The um, intent typically is to be an economic development tool. So these are created and designed to spur economic development and job creation in distressed communities. So in an opportunity zone, which is the new law here, new investments under certain conditions may be eligible for some preferential tax treatment that we'll talk about in a little bit. The way uh, localities are qualified as opportunity zones where you can invest is they're designated by the state. So each state gets to choose these census tracts around their their state and counties or wherever where there's low-income areas, kind of poverty-type areas that they want to designate for economic development and job creation. So they'll designate the areas. And they're posted on the state's websites. And then that's where you can invest in some of these opportunity zone businesses. So the feds really are giving the state the the opportunity to say which areas are going to be designated. Right. And it's a federal the federal law, so it applies to your federal taxes, and you need to look at each state to see if they're going to be complying with any of this or not. But um I'm guessing California will not comply. Yeah, so far it doesn't look like it. But um if you it's a federal law, but the states get to pick the areas that qualify. Okay. So who are these new roles gonna apply to? These rules apply to any individual taxpayer, basically. If you have a gain from any sort of asset sale or investment, uh, this could be a large capital gain from a stock transaction or selling a private company or selling your home or selling a piece of artwork, anything where you have a large capital gain. In the past, there wasn't really anything you could do about the capital gain for most types of uh, asset sales. So if you sold stock or artwork or whatever, you have a gain, you pay the tax. Nothing you can do to minimize it unless you have offsetting losses from somewhere else. Real estate was an exception where there was a, there's a rule called 1031 exchange where you can do a tax deferred exchange and you can kind of roll your gain into a new investment property. And that only applied to real estate. So real estate always had something along these lines where you could defer the gain 
but it wasn't eligible for any other stuff like stock or that kind of thing. I mean, there, there is a qualified small business thing too for the stocks. There's tiny little things, but most, most of the people doesn't apply to, doesn't apply to most asset sales. But under this new law, you can take any gain from anything and you can roll it into one of these opportunity zones. So really anybody that has a large capital gain and they don't want to avoid paying the tax on it, you want to be looking at the opportunity zones as a possible option to defer your tax. So it's any capital gains. Any capital gain, correct. You can't roll like a large bonus or commission or like ordinary income type thing into these. This is going to be for capital gains. Okay. So what are the tax benefits of these new opportunity zones? Well, these zones are designed to spur economic development, as I said, by providing tax benefits to the investors. The first thing is you get tax deferral. The investors can defer tax on any prior gains invested in a qualified opportunity fund until the earlier of the date on which the investment in the opportunity fund is sold or exchanged or December 31st, 2026. So you get tax deferral for up to about seven or eight years, you know, depending on when you've, you've done it. And if you hold the QF investment, the qualified opportunity fund for longer than five years, you get to take a 10% haircut on the gain. So when you do recognize the gain, you only pay tax on 90% of the gain. If you hold it for more than seven years, that 10% becomes 15%. And now you get a 15% haircut on the gain. So you only end up paying tax on 85% of the original gain amount. So if you roll a million dollar gain into one of these qualified opportunity funds and you hold it for seven years, then you only pay tax on $850,000 gain, 85% if you hold it for seven years. So that's the first benefit, but there's more than that. The second benefit, which could be potentially even bigger, is that if you hold the investment in the opportunity fund for at least 10 years, then you get basically a tax-free gain on any increase in value over the original investment into the qualified opportunity fund. So if that $1 million you put into the opportunity fund turns into $2 million by the time you sell it and you have a $1 million increase in gain, you don't pay any tax on that $1 million gain. So no actually, tax? Zero tax. You get tax-free gain on anything over 10 years. And the way mechanically how it works for the tax nerds out there is it's an adjustment to your basis in the qualified opportunity fund. The basis gets adjusted upwards so you end up having no uh, realized gain on the sale. So when you originally make the investment, you have a zero basis because you are deferring your gain from the prior sale in there. And then after five years, you get a 10% basis step up. Then it's the, another 5% after the seven years. And then you get the full step up after the uh, 10 years if you hold it for that long. So let's back up a little bit because that's a lot of information. If we are looking at, say, that we're holding an investment now and we could sell that investment and have a million dollar gain on that gain, we could invest that gain into an opportunity zone. And if as long as we hold that investment for 10 years, any increase on that gain will be completely tax free. Yeah, just the incremental increase from the original investment that you rolled in there. So you don't get the entire gain free after that seven year mark or at the end of 2026. You have to recognize the original gain that you rolled in there. Okay. Up to 85%. Up to 85%. So you, you are still getting a, a decent haircut on the gain that you're recognizing, or I'm sorry, not recognizing, but deferring now. Yeah. So there's it's two parts of the opportunity zone thing. It's tax deferral and then tax exclusion. And the deferral happens on the original gain. Exclusion happens on the subsequent gain, you know, presuming there's a subsequent gain. 
Wow. And the other neat thing about these funds is if we take a look at the 1031 exchange for real estate, for instance, typically with those, you need to roll the entire investment, the entire sales proceeds, the gain and everything into the new property. So if you have a property you sold for $2 million, which has a $1 million gain and $1 million your original investment in that property, and you're going to do a 1031 tax deferred exchange, you have to basically buy another $2 million or more property to avoid paying any tax on the gain. So you got to roll the full $2 million sales price into the new property. With the opportunity zones, you only need to roll the gain into the new funds. So if you have a, a taxpayer who has a rental property that they want to sell that has a million dollar gain, but it's a $2 million sale, rather than doing a 1031 exchange, a new tool we have here is the opportunity zones. And we could say, hey, let's take a million dollars of the gain, the entire gain, roll that into the opportunity fund. So you get tax deferral on that. And then you can get your $1 million principal back and you have access to your capital again. So instead of rolling all the proceeds into it, like with the traditional 1031 exchange for real estate, we can roll just the gain. So th that's another really neat thing about this is you can roll just the gain portion, but get your principal back. So it sounds like maybe 1031 exchanges might not happen as often. Well, who knows? You know, we'll, we'll see. It's definitely just another option on the opportunity fund thing. You also can, instead of a 1031 exchange where you got to invest into another piece of real estate, basically, you got to do a like kind property. Uh, in the opportunity fund, you can invest in a business or something like that, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So you have a little more diversification of where you can invest in things. We'll see. I think 1031 exchanges for real estate will still be popular, I think, because, you know, people will just want to go into real estate. But the opportunity fund thing is neat, too. The downside of the opportunity fund thing is you do recognize that gain after like seven, eight years or whatever at the end of 2026. Yeah. So there has so to be you're some planning around that. You have to plan cash flow wise for that, because if you're going to hold your investment for 10 years, presumably you're not getting any money back. Where is the capital going to come from to pay the tax on the original gain rolled in? You need to plan for that from a cash flow perspective. So what is a qualified opportunity fund and can you create your own or do you need to invest in one that's already created? A qualified opportunity fund is an investment vehicle and set up either legally and under state law as a partnership or a corporation for investing in eligible property that is located in the qualified opportunity zone. <laughs> so, so you have to have some designation. Yeah. To become a qualified opportunity fund, any eligible corporation or partnership self-certifies by filing a, a form with the IRS. Form 8996 is the one they came up with. Qualified opportunity fund. And that entity files it with its federal income tax return. So you could certainly go form your own qualified opportunity fund, or you can invest in one that someone else has already created. You can do either one. So when I hear self-certified, I wonder, is that audit risk? Uh, how are they going to prove that they are an opportunity zone? That is audit risk. You know, uh, you could get audited and end up not being an opportunity zone. That's part of the thing that we're struggling a little bit with. If you're trying to raise investment from outside, uh, the investors are going to want to know if it's going to actually qualify as an opportunity zone or not, because you don't want to risk putting your gain in something that's not going to qualify. It's definitely that's one of the gray areas still where it's mm -hmm. kind of like a little bit of uncertainty around these things. But um, you file the form and you basically if you meet all the rules under the code section for being an opportunity fund, then you're going to be an opportunity fund. And if you end up failing some of the tests later on, there's a penalty at the fund level, like a per month penalty for each month that you fail to qualify because there's certain tests around assets and that kind of stuff that we'll talk about in a little bit. 
Okay. So we briefly touched on this, but maybe we can dive into this a little bit more. Where are these opportunity zones located? Uh, there's a list of uh, qualified opportunity zones, and it can be found in the Federal Register. There's a notice, um, Internal Revenue Bulletin Notice 2018-48. That's where you can go on the IRS website. If you Google opportunity zone locations or something like that, you'll get a lot of resources that pop up. So this is one of the areas. Also, a lot of the states, like I know California has on their website um, a map where it shows you the actual zones, and you can take a look. It's by census tract, so not necessarily by zip code or something. So you need to check very carefully if you're going to you know, invest in a piece of real estate and opportunity zone. You want to make sure that it definitely is in the right zone. So I would probably go to the state website as the first place and make sure that you're looking at the right census tracts and the thing qualifies. But you can you can find all this information online, typically at the state websites or on the, the federal bulletin, as I said. And does timing of the investment or the project matter? I've been reading some about like a plush hotel in Oakland that was already had plans, but now they're converting that to to qualify for the economic zone. Um, I also read about Under Armour where they had a new headquarters that they had been planning for, and now they're looking to convert that. How does that conversion work? The opportunity fund that's set up can designate which month it wants to start being treated as an opportunity fund when you do the self-certification. So oh, you get okay. to pick when you want to start being an opportunity fund, and that's when you need to start meeting all the tests to be an opportunity fund. So you have some flexibility planning-wise on the at the entity level for the fund when you set it up, uh, when you want to do it. So yeah, if you have an existing project, you can now set up a new fund and then roll the existing project up into that fund as of a certain date. And then as you add the gains rolling into there to help fund that project, those funds could qualify for the tax deferral and ultimately the exclusion. Wow. There's a really good tax foundation article recently online that uh, talks about how these kind of things in general and uh, the opportunity zones in particular, but just in general, these economic development incentives and do they really work as intended and expert economic development? Uh, the answer seems to be kind of not really. So you, as you mentioned just now, like Under Armour, I think even some of the stuff about Amazon's new HQ and some of those, like, mm -hmm. you know, all of a sudden they get like these gigantic businesses get this extra tax break on top of stuff when, it, you know, they were already doing a project anyway. So the results maybe don't necessarily always pan out, but it doesn't mean the can't take advantage of the tax rule and do this thing. So it's a neat article if you want to check it out. If you go to the Tax Foundation website and search for Opportunity Zones, you can read that article. So what types of assets are these qualified opportunity funds required to invest in? So the opportunity fund, which is organized as a corporate partnership, has to be invested in uh, holding qualified opportunity zone property. And so we'll define that in a little bit, but 90% of the assets invested in the fund have to be qualified ozone property as measured on the last day of the first six month period of the taxable year of the fund and also on the last day of the taxable year of the fund. So again, that timing of when you self-certify, you need to uh, time that accordingly. So if you form a new entity and you form it in February and you're gonna put a couple million dollars into there, well, the entity's gonna have all cash on day one, right? Cause you're just yeah, rolling right. in your gain. So you basically have six months to get that into qualified ozone property. And then it also has to have 90% of that money has to be in ozone property at the end of the year still. So if you add like more cash, you know, then it's, then you're going to fail that test a little bit. <clears throat> so 
So once funded, it has to be invested within six months. Yeah, basically. In qualified ozone property, which there's a lot of types of qualified ozone property. So you'll see below there's still ways to make it happen because practically speaking, you know, you may not be able to like spend all that money on a project all at once. It gets spent over time. Sure, because the intent is also to improve projects, right? right so right. you're investing in a strip mall. There's going to be, you know, an improvement that's going to happen as well. So that's not going to happen in the six months. Right. So, again, well, we can go over those rules in a little bit here. And then, you know, how you define the 90% of assets, it's by the asset values. If you have applicable financial statements, this would be your wheelhouse, you know, if you mm -hmm. have like an audited or reviewed financial statements, it goes by asset values. If you don't have those, then it goes by the cost basis. So the income tax cost basis of the assets, presumably that's the unadjusted cost basis. So you don't factor in depreciation or anything. It's just the original unadjusted cost basis. But okay. that, that's how you define the, the 90% test. So this is a question, I guess, for you on the value. Is, is that going to be then closer to a fair value thing for certain investments on applicable financial statements? Or is it still going to be a historical cost type thing? Uh, it's going to be dependent on the investment. So property and equipment is held at historical value for gap purposes. So what about um, like a equity interest in another like a corporation stock or partnership interest? Uh, an equity interest, as long as it's valued at fair value, then it will be um, included in a fair value at the date of the financial statements. Okay. Cause that gets into kind of the thing about what's the qualified ozone property. And so it mm -hmm. can be three things It can be qualified ozone stock. So an investment in another entity okay, and the corporation stock, or it can be a qualified ozone partnership interest. So it can be a partnership located in the ozone Oh wow. Okay. or it can be qualified ozone business property, which will again, define again, more basically tangible assets. And then if you look at the, basically the rules for the stock or the partnership interest are, they need to be invested in the qualified ozone property, which again is tangible assets. Mm -hmm. So it ultimately ends up being, you have to be invested in tangible assets in the, in the ozone, whether it's real estate or whether it's um, like a business or, or that kind of thing. Um, so I guess we can define some of this stuff in a little more detail here. The qualified ozone stock, it's going to be corporate stock, has to be domestic corporation has to be acquired after 12-31-17. You have to acquire at the original issue, so you can't acquire the stock off of somebody else in this corporation. It can't be like a pre-existing corporation either. But it can be a newly formed corporation and transfer assets in. Right. I mean, it could be an existing corporation, but it has to issue new stock. You gotta get the stock from original issue to get the investment. Okay. And you gotta get it solely in exchange for cash. So you gotta do cash in exchange for the shares. And then at the time you acquire the stock, the corporation was a qualified ozone business. So a qualified ozone business is any trader business in which substantially all the tangible property owned or leased is qualified ozone business property. At least half of the business's gross income is derived from the active conduct of a trader business. So it can't be like a passive kind of thing it has to be like an actively run business and it can't be an excluded type of business. And there's a few businesses where they specifically identify you can't invest in those. So they're uh, golf courses, Country clubs, so Trump can't do it for a bunch <laughs> of his properties. Uh, massage parlors, hot tub facilities, suntan tub facilities. facilities. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the rules, you know. Uh, racetrack or facility used for gambling or any liquor store, basically. So if the, any store that has the primary business purpose of selling alcoholic beverages off-premise, to take, to take off-premise, like not consume there. Then so a bar is okay. A bar is okay, but a liquor store would not be okay. Interesting, okay. So, I mean, obviously, I think they don't want to, like, 
spur economic development of a bunch of crappy liquor stores in these low-income areas. So that's part of the reason why I think that exclusion is in there, obviously. So, But any other business is going to qualify. So some of the stuff you may look into that's kind of like turnkey type things or like, you know, um, like a coin laundry kind of place would qualify, you know, like a bar or something or a restaurant, a grocery store, you know, a lot of those kind of things would qualify if they're in the zones as far like an active business that you could invest in. I think you probably see a lot of restaurants as an option mm-hmm. this is going to apply to. And then maybe you can find some of like the coin laundry type things or some of those that you can invest in. And then you're probably going to see just a lot of rental real estate too, which is also going to, should be able to qualify as well. And there's no requirements for like a low income housing. It, it can be any type of rental. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah. And, and then the other, the last requirement for the stock is during substantially all of the funds holding period for the stock, the corporation qualifies as a qualified ozone business. Um, I don't think they define substantially all, but basically the vast majority of the time. So they're still issuing more and more, you know, regulations and clarifications on this stuff. So not all of it's finalized yet, but you know, it has to basically be a ozone business the whole time. Can't be like for a short period of time, then like sell all of its assets and just turn into cash. You sure. Know? <clears throat> okay. Um, an ozone partnership interest is going to have similar rules, just going to be applying to a partnership. So you have to invest in a capital or a profits interest in a domestic partnership. Again, acquire it after 1231.17, solely in exchange for cash. At the time you buy in, the partnership has to be a qualified ozone business. And during substantially all the holding period, the partnership is a qualified ozone business. And then what about the, the ozone business property? Yeah, so the property, and this is really what the key definition comes down to, has to be tangible property used in a trader business of a taxpayer if three requirements are satisfied. Um, the property has to be acquired by the Ozone after 1231.17. So it has to be a new acquisition of property. The original use of the Ozone property has to commence with the, the fund, or the fund has to substantially improve the property. So this is the key thing here. Either it's new development, mm. or a new business, or you're doing everything from scratch and no one's owned it before, or if you're buying like an existing structure or building or something, you have to substantially improve it, make major upgrades. And they define, they define substantially improve here as being during the 30 month period, beginning on the date you buy in any additions to basis with respect to the property and the funds hands have to exceed an amount equal to the adjusted basis of the property at the beginning of the 30 month period. So in English, that means you have to spend more than the original purchase price on improving it. So if you bought a coin operated laundry facility for $200,000, you would need to spend $200,000 on improving that property. Right. Or you'd have to start a new one. Oh, okay. Or you could have a second location in the opportunity zone. Well, you could just start a new location. Okay. So either you start something new or if you buy something existing, you spend at least as much as the original purchase price on just improving it. So if you're going to, for a developer, this is probably not going to be a problem if they're trying to buy something at a low cost and they're going to put a lot of upgrades into it. You got to, you buy a piece of, you know, rundown building for a million bucks in one of these zones, knock it down, knock it down and build a new one. You do $3 million of construction. You easily qualify. You have 30 months to get it done. Right. And then it qualifies. Wow. So we could see a, a huge building boom in these areas. That I mean, that's supposed to be the incentive, right? But the downsides that people talk about are, you know, like 
gentrification of the areas. Uh, this crowds out the people that are already living there because it raises property values too much and they can't afford to live there anymore. The benefits just end up in the hands, really, of the investors putting the money in and that kind of stuff. And the community doesn't see as much of the actual benefit themselves. You know, so there's all these, like, you know, negatives, supposedly, historically, on the way the, some of these things have gone down. But like I said, it doesn't mean that the, the opportunity zones still aren't out there and still not a possibility. Yeah, I think we actually saw Boulder turn down their opportunity zone designation. They put an 18-month moratorium on building because they feel like this is not what the people of Boulder want. They don't want to see these huge investments and more development when they already feel like they're seeing so much development. So that's interesting because the state picks the zones, right? But is that a locality thing where they that, say we're just not going to allow building, which then effectively makes it like useless? The zones is that kind of how it that's, happened? That's exactly how it happened. So the the local community voted that they were going to put a moratorium on building. So in effect, nobody can invest in any new uh, real estate opportunities. Yeah. So that's what makes these things I think so interesting and unique, but also challenging is that you. You have to deal with all these complexities that like the local level as well, like a developer does and that kind of thing. So you got to really do your homework. If you're going to do your new fund yourself or whatever, you need to make sure you're going to be able to get permits and get your project through, you know, all those kind of things or you're going to be in trouble. And one of the things I'm still actually unclear on is like if you do roll a gain into a fund, then the fund creates a new single purpose entity to do a development like a S corporation to a do a development property or something. Mm -hmm. And then you start the whole process and you, you have that 30 month period in which you can construct the property. Like you buy the property and then you try and do the development and then the town comes in and puts a moratorium on permit or something. So you can't do it. Like you don't meet the 30 month period. What's going to happen? I think your deferral thing still works out, but obviously you start racking up this per month penalty for failing to qualify as an ozone at the fund level. And that becomes an issue. So there's some of those kind of questions that I think are still unanswered, but it's going to be you know, that, that's going to be a problem if it happens for some people. And that's what makes these things on the riskier side. And you probably got to do a lot of homework. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One thing I don't think I mentioned yet is how long you have to roll your gain into the fund. And you have 180 days. So you have six months, basically, from when your gain happens to roll the money into the fund. So you need to be researching things right away. That's the same time period you have for a 1031 tax deferred exchange too, is the six month period to close the, the deal. So, and that would be a gain recognized in 2019 or it could be a gain in the, anytime in the last six months. So we're in January, 2019. Now it could have been any, any time in the last several months in the end of 18 or whatever. Okay. You so have the six end, months. The end of 18 it. would still count as well. Yeah. Or, you know, anytime now in 19 or as soon as from the day of the gain, you have six months. To invest. So you had mentioned some penalties if uh, you don't qualify. Maybe if we could discuss that a little bit more. Yeah, there's a monthly penalty. Again, it's like a self-reporting thing if it's not qualifying. So, you know, as the accountants, I think we're the ones that are going to be doing these calculations to make sure it qualifies every month or not or filling out the form for the penalty. It's essentially equivalent to the annual underpayment penalty or it's an interest rate. So that's currently 6% now with the IRS. And it applies on all of the non-qualified opportunity zone property assets each month. So for each month that the assets are not 
qualified for his own property, you take that amount of the assets that doesn't qualify, and you have a 6% annual interest rate divided by 12 for one month worth of the penalty. Interesting. So if we went back to that example of they bought an old building for a million dollars, they intended to to build a new building and they were going to spend $3 million on it, but now there's a building moratorium. Like, How does that penalty factor in there? Well, my guess is since you have that 30-month period um, when you first buy the property in which you can substantially improve it, the penalty is not going to apply for at least 30 months. Mm-hmm. And at that point, if you fail that test, then now the stock or partnership interest of the entity that bought the building, that's no longer qualified opportunity zone corporation or qualified opportunity zone partnership. So now the fund, which is the next tier up of the entity, that now is not holding qualified ozone property because the entity below it doesn't qualify anymore. Now the entire value of that entity is going to have this penalty applying every single month. And so if it looked like it was going to not happen, the deal wasn't going to go down, perhaps they were going to decide to shut down the entity then. Then they could shut down the fund, distribute all the assets back, and now you're going to pay tax on the original gain you rolled in at that point. And if you don't meet that five-year period, you don't get that 10% haircut. Okay. You're going to pay just 100% of the gain, or pay tax on 100% of the original gain at the time you're shutting down the fund at that point. Okay. Well, there's a lot, yeah, a lot to think about for these. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of fun stuff. It's a new thing. It's just, like I said in the beginning of the podcast, it's another planning tool that we have available for our clients where, you know, in addition to the the usual things we can do to try and minimize taxes on gains, this is now a new tool. It's, It's definitely exciting. I've had a lot of clients so far express interest in it. The challenges that I foresee are just either being able to do it yourself and not having the skill set to do it or you're partnering up and investing as like a limited partner in in an entity that someone else is doing when they're raising money for a fund to do it. And I'm guessing that's happening a lot right now. That's probably happening a lot with developers kind of leading the way. Well, the question then is going to be, how do you find these opportunities? They're not like publicly traded things you can just go out and invest in. So you'd have to be like a qualified investor and you probably have to be a qualified, like accredited investor And I think you're going to start to see some opportunities creep up slowly, larger ones through probably some of the same companies that are doing like Delaware statutory trusts and, Mm. you know, selling tick interests, you know, or triple net lease kind of things or REITs, like a bunch of those kind of companies. Maybe you're going to be able to identify and fund larger investments that qualify where you can buy some fractional share, Mm -hmm. roll your money in to qualify, or you're going to have to find like local deals or find it through word of mouth or something or some of that kind of stuff. So I think the challenge is finding the opportunities to invest in in that short time frame. I, I do foresee some of those like REIT type entities like Inland or some of those companies. They do a lot of the Delaware Statutory Trust now, which is a, another planning tool, like a whole other podcast we could talk about as a 1031 exchange option. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to see those companies have qualified opportunity funds available for you to invest in. And that may be the safest route to go because these are large established companies. They're going to have you know, good teams of accountants and lawyers. They're going to do their homework and make sure there isn't going to be that building moratorium coming in. And yeah, to to make sure that a, the funds qualify, you know, and that B they're going to be able to see the investment through and that kind of stuff. So I'm guessing there'll be some of that kind of stuff. And then the other really interesting thing is just, well, when does this all end? The gains in 2026 is when you have to recognize that initial gain. So 
you're running out of time now to get that 15% uh, haircut and it could only be a 10% haircut now coming up here pretty soon, right? And then also, you know, what if the new Congress now we're a Democrat controlled Congress, what if they want to try and change the rules again? You know, what's going to happen? Typically when stuff like this has passed in my experience, I've seen over the past, you know, I'm thinking my 15th year now of doing taxes and everything and seen a few major tax acts. They don't usually claw stuff back like this when, okay, it's, so, when, it's, when it's right midstream. So if it's already set up, then even if they ended the, the opportunity zones, they would honor the ones that had historically been set up. Yeah, they're either just going to let the whole thing expire as scheduled when it sunsets, which is probably what happened with like the Bush era tax cuts. Obama let them expire and sunset. Um, the whole Tax Cuts and Jobs Act has a sunset around this time, which is why this is part of it. So they're probably just going to let it sunset and expire. But there's no saying they won't change their mind and just drastically alter the tax code again. That's certainly possible. It'd be definitely disruptive to a lot of the planning people have done. But there's no saying that's not a possibility. You know, no one can foresee, you know, what could happen or what kind of economic circumstances could change in our country that would force something like that to happen. And if they did do something like that, one would at least hope things are grandfathered in for the sure. existing ones, because that'd be even more disruptive. It may you may just see something where they say, okay, we're gonna shut this down where you can't do any new ones anymore, but everybody's already in can be grandfathered in kind of thing. Legislative action and policy change is certainly always a concern of mine in the tax planning world. That's yeah, what, I know we talk <clears throat> about it a lot in the state and trust. Yeah, state and trust, and even like the Roth, Roth IRAs and Roth conversions, that kind of stuff. That's why I'm, you know, very against doing Roth conversions when you pay a lot of tax because tax deductions are a matter of legislative grace, as they say. <laughs> and um, I don't want to advise my client to do a Roth conversion, pay a lot of tax, and they Congress decides in the future that they're going to get rid of Roth status and everything coming out of a Roth IRA now is going to be taxable you know, or something like that. Like now you, the whole, the whole purpose of doing the conversion has been undone and you kind of got screwed, you know? So that's, that was just in the back of my head. So I do like Roth conversions. I do it if we have very little risk, very little tax paid or no tax paid is the best. So you can get a free conversion. Right. That makes a lot of sense, but it seems like this is a, a really great planning opportunity and somebody that has significant gains that they want to defer. This would be a great opportunity for them. Yeah, like I said, it's just, it's just another planning tool. You know, if you got it, especially if you have a stock gain or something like that, you really only have this as your only planning tool available to minimize that tax hit. If you had qualified small business stock, then you have a secondary tool, which is the actual exclusion itself. If you reach the five-year mark in your QSBS stock, or you have the rollover provision under IRC 1045, where you can roll a QSBS gain into a new QSBS investment, that's definitely a planning tool. But for your standard just investment, if you just say you timed the market really good, you bought a bunch of stock in March 2009, and it went way up and you have huge gains, um, you don't have any other planning tools available to defer those gains or exclude them except for this provision here. Actually, technically there's one more really cool one. Do you want to hear about it? Yes, please. <clears throat> All right. So the last cool thing where you can defer gains on a stock sale, it only applies if basically you get a high enough position in the federal government, like almost a cabinet level position or around there, then you can get uh, some sort of certification. I forget the exact thing, but you get it signed off by the government and then you're allowed to like diversify all your holdings and defer them into something else. The purpose being that they don't want 
people high up in the cabinet to have like a conflict of interest oh, on their right. investments and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So you think about Tillerson, you know, who was the secretary of state before he's from Exxon, you know, so he right. probably had like a ton of Exxon stock with low basis and like a huge gain. So a guy like that can come in and then totally diversify all of his holdings into like all kinds of mutual funds or broad based index stuff. You get like a one time like lifetime reset without paying tax on diversification. Like that's so huge. And I think so. I think it's a huge incentive. Some of these guys that take some of these positions in government end up. It's got to be a consideration they're thinking about as they get this one time diversification. Sure. <laughs> Execute well on that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's it's a pretty neat thing. I think um, someone else I was talking to my clients. He was saying someone else took advantage of it, too. Um, I forget who the guy was, but uh, it's just a neat tool, you know, that you could do. I never, like I said, never, I never had a cabinet level client. <laughs> so it's definitely a rare thing. Makes sense. But uh, I guess if you're like an expert in something and you're thinking about doing your civic duty and helping the government, then, uh, you know, we should be talking about it. Little bonus. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was all I got. Well, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate uh, you taking time to explain opportunity zones. I definitely learned a lot and uh, see this as a, a really good planning tool. So that's all for today's episode of the Debit This, Credit That podcast. As always, if you have a question, you can contact your Wheeler Accountants Preparer or submit a question online at our website on the Ask Wheeler section at the bottom of the page. Please remember to follow us on social media for regular updates at Wheeler CPAs and on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening as we help you solve for accounting.